Hello, and welcome to Philosophy Voiced, a podcast from the Center for Ethics at the University of Pardubice, Czech Republic. Today, we are joined by Roger Crisp. Professor Crisp is Professor of Moral Philosophy at Oxford University and Uehiro Fellow and Tutor in Philosophy at St. Anne's College, Oxford. His work falls principally within the field of ethics. Today's podcast will be a brief discussion about a paper of Professor Crisp's titled Towards a Global Hedonism. You can read the abstract in the notes below. Okay, welcome everyone. My name is Patrick Keenan, and I will be moderating today's discussion. I am joined by my two colleagues, Vladimir Lukic and Peter Tuck. We are all PhD students at the Center for Ethics and are co-organizing a PhD conference that will take place here in Pardubice in August entitled, What Really Matters? Reflections on Human Values. Our keynote speakers for the conference are Dr. Debbie Roberts and our guest today, Professor Roger Crisp. Welcome, Professor Crisp. Um, So I think we can just go ahead and get started. If there's anything you want to say, or maybe Vladimir or Peter might uh, want to lead with a question. No, sure. Let's go ahead. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. This first question is inspired by stuff you write in this paper, but also in a similar previous paper of yours, which is Hedonism Reconsidered because um, that's another place where you discuss these ideas. And um, the part that's most interesting to me to ask about, purely because it's so central, is um, the Robert Nozick stuff. So you point out, like correctly, that um, the, the Robert Nozick's experience machine argument is considered to be a kind of a takedown or a knockdown of like simple pleasure-based, like hedonistic views. And I was taught it in first year undergraduate uh, in that way. And, um, you know, for years I've been thinking that it is like a pretty fundamental takedown. But then you've provided a list of reasons why we shouldn't necessarily think that. And I mean, I've got the stuff here, but it would probably be better if you would just like tell us in your own words what you think is problematic about the, the Robert Nozick stuff. Um, well, I mean, let me give you an example kind of independently of the uh, paper that um, Dale Jameson suggested to me once. So <clears throat> imagine that you, you die. And it turns out that dualism was uh, correct and uh, your soul goes up to heaven. And it turns out that uh, Barclay's metaphysics was correct. Okay, Mm. the world is just consciousness. Maybe it's part of the consciousness of God. Maybe not. Maybe the story is different. But anyway, there's no, there's no matter. It's all just consciousness. Dale's intuition is that you would find that interesting, but you wouldn't have the reaction that people have to the experience machine. You wouldn't think, oh, I've made a terrible mistake. You know, I've been believing that there is this external world and everything's meaningless. Um, so I think the one problem with the Nozick example is that I think it relies upon for example, people's fears of mad scientists, machines that go wrong, and so on. And I'm inclined to think that on reflection, um, most people are not going to be so concerned about the metaphysical truth, um, as as Anozik seems to think. Hmm. Yeah, there is something like that about it. Like... um... It's not just the actual philosophical point he's making, but the idea of like living in some kind of artificial machine does just yeah. instinctively sound horrible. And um, maybe we have to try and uh, 
avoid avoid just looking at it that way to, to yeah I, mean, I, think there, I think there are other elements to it as well i mean it, he i think he makes it seem that as it were when you've been plugged in <clears throat> to the machine uh what will happen is just that some program will be played played back to you as it were a kind of recording of the internal life of somebody else or something like that um and that that seems to me um confusing i mean <laughs> we should keep the issue of autonomy and the fact that we don't like our lives being interfered with which hedonists can make perfect sense of we should keep that separate from the metaphysics so we should assume that when you go onto the machine it's going to be just like being in this world except that you know the 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 um the machine world will be more friendly so that you know the chances are if you try and write a uh you know uh, a novel that will win the booker prize in this world you'll fail but on the machine you'll succeed right because everything will be arranged for that Vladimir, do you have a question? Yes, I do. I do have a question. Uh, Professor Chris, I'm really interested in the following, following thing from your paper. It is how we value something based on internal and external reasons. For example, you talk about internalist and externalist account of pleasure, right? And you argue that um, the externalist account of pleasure can be uh, subsumed under the account of the internalist one, internalist nature, right? Now, let us trace a couple of steps back and let us ask us the, ask a question, what do we value in general and how do we value things? And you talk about the absolute value and all the other values being a part of this absolute value, right? The things which are valuable being a part of one absolutist view, right? And um, I was thinking about how we value things in the first place. And I remember you have written extensively on that, especially you criticizing the Tim Scanlon's back passing account. Uh, and um, it's actually super interesting to consider these two, these two papers as correlated to one another. And following from that, I want to ask one question. I personally, and I would like to share my personal opinion on this, on this matter. I feel like that we usually value things which are external to us. We value things which make us feel something. We value things based on their properties that arise based on our narration of the social context. For example, why do we value uh, pleasantries? We value pleasantries because we have a social context describing the, the importance of pleasantries. Why do we value, I don't, I don't know, why do we value friendliness? In the same way, we have a social context which, in which friendliness gives pleasantries, which is purely present. And this self-narration and social narration brings forth specific values within one context. And now I think at the other, on the other side, following from this description on how I think we value things, how do we value pleasure? And I would like you to comment on this, on this instance. I, I think that we value pleasure because we have this correspondence between us feeling pleasure when we experience something in the external world. For example, if, I don't know, we feel pleasure when we sit, um, 
sit, go out and drink coffee with their friends. We feel pleasure. Therefore, we value this uh, context-based uh, action because it gives us pleasure. We, we, and in this regard, pleasure can be quite fluid. And we can argue for the subjectivity of pleasure in this sense because social context is pluralistic in general. And most of people feel pleasure in some, in some things in which some people do not. And this kind of brings it to, to the value-based relation that we feel that we value pleasure because it is correlated with external context or external narrative. What do you think of this claim? Yeah, um, I think it's worth disentangling various versions of the internal-external uh, distinction. So I guess I've, I'm inclined towards internalism about pleasure, but externalism about reasons so i think um in so internalism about pleasure would be the view that there's a single property internal to pleasant experience which is the experience of pleasantness pleasurableness pleasure whatever you want to call it uh, and this is a sense of kind of basic sensation as Locke uh, described it like pain painfulness they're both um basic uh, basic sensations and they run through all pleasant experiences now um in the 20th century um many people distanced themselves from that view because they thought well these experiences are very different from one another they're so different that there doesn't seem to be anything common to them the pleasure of relaxing in the sun is very different from the pleasure of of you know playing um some Chopin piece on the piano or something like that. <clears throat> now, it's true that they are very different, but they seem to have this common quality of pleasantness. And you can ask people, um, which, which activities did you get more pleasure from today, sitting in the sun or playing the Chopin? And they can reply. Um, because there seems to be the, this common quality. So though pleasures differ greatly, there seems to be this quality of pleasantness which is internal to all of them so that's internalism and i think the problem with externalism is that you soon if you start thinking about um the implications of externalism which says well no you know pleasure arises when people take attitudes external to some experience to the content of the experience you run into trouble because often when people say well I want this experience to continue. And you say, well, why? They'll say, because it's pleasant. Uh, and that takes you back to internalism there. Then to, to move on to the contrast between internal and external reasons, which you mentioned. Well, um, Derek Parfit is uh, or was um, an externalist about pleasure, but he used hedonic states to argue for externalism about reasons. I mean, he particularly thinks about bad states, I mean, agony. So the idea is that if you, you know, if there's some agonizing experience that you're going to go through shortly, unless you perform some action, you clearly have a reason to take that action, which is independent of your current motivational states. Whereas the internalist about reasons is going to say, well, no, you know, all your reasons come from your motivational states. 
Um, and I would there be inclined to agree with uh, to agree with Parfit. It seems to me, I mean, motivational states are just that. I mean, they are just motivational states. They can't give you a reason to do anything. Um, they're, they're just psychological states. If they're not, if they're neither pleasant nor unpleasant or whatever, uh, then they don't ground any reason. So we need to keep motivation, I think, um, well apart from grounding reasons or justifying uh, reasons. Now, the, the, there's also this question that you were bringing up about the pleasure that we take in certain, as it were, states of the world external to our minds, which is, I suppose, a third version of the internal, external uh, distinction. And people often use these examples as uh, objections to hedonism. So the idea is that... Um, you know, you're taking pleasure in some great work of art, for example, because of the qualities of the work of art. That's what you're enjoying. And the uh, what you're enjoying is the value in the work of art. And many people will say that your experience itself is of value to you because you're, you're appreciating, appreciating this work of art as well as enjoying it. And there I think there are two as it were, prongs to the hedonist response. The, the first um, argument is to note that hedonism has a real advantage over um, more pluralistic views of, of value in that nobody, well, not nobody, but very few people dispute that pleasure is good and pain is bad. So the, the hedonist's positive assertions of value are pretty reliable. The question is, what do the hedonists say about um, the assertions of non-hedonic value? And that's the second part of the argument where the hedonist will, in effect, try to use hedonism in certain ways to undermine those claims about value. So, for example, when people say that, um, say, acquiring knowledge or appreciating great art or uh, accomplishing something with, with one's life or having friends or whatever, when they say those things are valuable in themselves, it just seems a bit of a coincidence that those tend to be things that people enjoy. And some people, when they reflect upon these alleged non-hedonic goods and imagine what it would be like to have them with no enjoyment, believe that they would be worthless. So the only value that we that we find in them is through the pleasure that we we gain in in um, uh, gain in the experience of them. Vladimir, did you have a comment or uh, to this? Or I did, but I think expanding this discussion will take at least two more hours. So <laughs> I feel like we should at least cover the whole paper itself. So I will go afterwards. Okay, but thank so you for the answer, of Professor Chris. Thanks for the answer. Thanks for the question. So, Peter, you have a question. Yeah, I actually have a lot of questions. Some of them are inspired just from previously reading your work, but some of them from what you've been saying right now. So um, I'll just pick one. So um, Vladimir just briefly referred to something you've done before, which is um, you have this pretty well-known and popular thought experiment, which is the one about the demon. 
um, which is used to problematize certain kinds of theories of values, like ones that are based on attitudes or properties. And um, uh, I hope that's a okay, rough way to, to describe it. But um, could you just briefly, for the listeners, uh, tell us about the demon? But also, my question would be not what kind of theories it problematizes, but the opposite, what theories you think are the strongest ones to respond to your example there? Yeah. Well, the, I mean, the point of the demon example is to sort of pose a, a problem for attitudinal analysis of, uh, analyses of value, uh, but not just to pose a problem, also to sort of demonstrate that uh, what that problem is. So the idea is this. I mean, say somebody tries to analyse um, X is valuable by saying that is equivalent to X is being such that um, you should have a fitting attitude to it. So, you know, a painting is beautiful if um, some, pro some uh, attitude such as admiration is appropriate to it. The, the, the demon problem is that the, you know, you have to imagine that if you don't have this um, attitude to something which is clearly hideous, then you're going to suffer a lot of pain. So I think the example I originally used was a saucer of mud, yeah. you know, which looks fairly unpleasant, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> Certainly doesn't look beautiful, and the demon, uh, the, it's such, the the situation is such that if you don't admire it, then uh, the the demon is going is going to inflict suffering on you. So it looks as if you have a very strong reason to take that attitude, uh, and the attitude certainly seems to be appropriate. I and mean, it'd be rather odd not to take the attitude if you could. And I think what that demonstrates is that. Um, these externalist attitudinal analyses of, of value are faulty in the same sort of way as the externalist account of pleasure is faulty. They're getting things the wrong way round. The people, you know, if we think about attitudes towards our own experience, often we'll want an experience to continue because it's pleasant. We shouldn't say it's pleasant in that you want it to continue. Okay. And um, uh, um, yeah, so just uh, maybe you could just say a little bit more about once, let's say someone's just considered everything you've discussed and they accept it and they think you're right about that, what kind of theory should they then be looking at? You know, what kind of theory doesn't have any, any such problems? Um, that's a good question. I think it would be perhaps best characterised as a non-attitudinal theory or possibly a realist theory so the idea would be that we want to keep values and reasons as it were apart from attitudes that people may take to them so i think i think somebody who's attracted to these non-attitudinal theories may well also be attracted to more realist views about the metaphysics of value um so yeah, to take one very simple case of, of that, I mean, the, I guess the most um, extreme form of subjectivism has it that when you claim that something is uh, right, morally right, or you claim that something is good, you're literally just expressing an emotion, uh, a positive emotion towards it. 
And it seems to me that somebody who, who holds an internalist view of pleasure, somebody who's worried about attitudinal analyses of value in general, is going to be more inclined towards denying those subjectivist meta-ethical views as well. Okay, thank you. Um, I, there is a lot more I'd like to say, but at the same time, um, we have got some other questions from the other guys. Um, yeah, I think Vladimir has a question. Yeah, um, I want to ask you this, since your conclusion in your paper is that, and you have mentioned it in the beginning as well, that uh, hedonism has been brushed off without much justification in the last century. And I actually really tend to agree, because when we look at main ethical theories and when we look at concepts such as social progress, such as political theory as well, we ultimately narrow down to one really interesting reason for them having reasons themselves, right? And this is for us to feel pleasure and for us not to feel pain. For example, when we consider feminism, right? Feminism has been working on the, institution, on the institutional discrimination of women. And this institutional discrimination of women has been going on for quite a long time. And why are we supposed to address it? Because women feel like their rights are being discriminated and therefore their pleasure in the society is ultimately thwarted. And uh, in, this, in the same regard, we also narrow down when it comes to racism, when it comes to hatred of specific groups of people and so on and so on. Therefore, I would reckon that social progress and ethical progress arises when we narrow down those uh, uh, experiences of pain in one society and when we maximize feelings of pleasure in one society when it comes to other groups of people. And also when we consider normative ethical theories, ultimately when they narrow down to their basic reasons, why we find them fitting to accept is because they promote maximum pleasure and they, um, they argue that pain should be suspended. What do you think of, of, this, of this claim? And why do you, what do you think it, that this claim kind of offers on the table when it comes to global hedonism argument? Yeah. Well, I think that those are some very uh, insightful points you made there. Um, I mean, one thing I would say about hedonism is, is that it has been possibly the dominant view of value in the history of philosophy. Uh, at least it's, it's certainly been up there with any other position. So its decline in the 20th century is, uh, requires some explanation, which I don't think we have yet. Um, some people think that it had something to do with um, uh, the, uh, the rather sort of stern view that people took of life in the, in the 19th century, very influenced by Christianity and so on. And also probably G.E. Moore and his book Principia Ethica had something to do with the decline of hedonism um, because he became a very well-known philosopher, not just within academic philosophy, but beyond. And um, in, his, in, in that book, it really attacked um, Mill, John Stuart Mill and Henry Sidgwick um, quite enthusiastically. Uh, on the, the relationship between hedonism and social movements, 
You're absolutely right. I mean, one could give a completely plausible hedonistic analysis of why feminism matters or why certain social justice movements matter in terms of hedonism. It may turn out, it would turn out, I think, that many of the people engaged in those movements themselves would say, well, we're not hedonists. We're not concerned just about um, pleasure and pain. But there, I think, the the hedonist, um, again, can use uh, an argument which is analogous to the argument used by consequentialists in moral theory. So, as you know, I mean, very often people will object to theories like utilitarianism by saying, oh, well, you know, your view is inconsistent with um, common sense intuitions about whether it whether we should hang innocent people or torture innocent innocent individuals and so on and the utilitarians to some extent can can respond by saying well actually if you think about those practices on the whole they tend not to produce um, net well-being so we we will teach people to um, to avoid those activities right now when it comes to hedonism, we note that, for example, people get a lot of enjoyment about accomplishing certain goals. Therefore, we might well encourage our children to set goals for themselves and achieve them. Um, but that's quite consistent with hedonism. If we think really the reason for doing it is that um, they'll they'll enjoy the achievement or the process of uh, achievement. So as it were, just as consequentialists can use secondary principles of justice or rights or whatever, so hedonists can use secondary principles which uh, refer to non-hedonic goods. Vladimir, do you have a comment? Or Peter, do you want to go with your question? Uh, yeah, like I was actually just going to ask about the parallels of utilitarianism and some of the criticisms of that, but you've just said some really nice stuff about that, so I'll move along to... Um, let me just see, there's a few other. All right, okay, so one thing I briefly wanted to ask you about is inspired by something you said earlier, where um, a few moments ago you said that um, it's rare for a philosopher to dispute that pleasure is good and pain is bad. You know, that's kind of an uncontroversial idea, what we can all agree on in this kind of discussion. But um, what would you say about views that do try and dispute that? And like two examples I could give, one of them would be Jonathan Dancy, um, depending on how you read his stuff. Um, in his uh, when he discusses specifically value, he doesn't do it that much. There's only a few pages, but um, he claims that we shouldn't always think pleasure is good or pain is bad. And um, obviously, George Moore has the theory of organic unity, which is actually softer than Dancy's version because um, he doesn't simply claim the thing can just not be good sometimes, but he claims it will be because of other things that are happening in the situation. Yeah. But, um, in either case, what do you what do you think about that kind of stuff? Um. Good. Um, let's talk about Dancy. So Dancy thinks, for example, that um, the pleasure of his playing tennis is valuable, whereas the pleasure of a sadist inflicting pain on some innocent victim who wants not to be tortured is not valuable. That's kind of old objection to hedonism. And I guess I'm inclined to think what the hedonist should say there is, well, obviously the, the pain is bad for the victim and the pleasure is valuable for the sadist, um, according to hedonism. 
but from the moral point of view, we certainly wouldn't want to encourage these activities. Um, so we need to keep the claim about what's good and bad for people uh, separate from the claim about what's morally good and bad. And then when we do that, we can see we, we, we can see that actually it just is true that some people take pleasure in causing pain to others, unfortunately. And I think Dancy has a problem just in terms of the neuroscience, because the neuroscience of pleasure, as far as we can tell, suggests that there's really no difference between all the different kinds of pleasure that people have postulated, I mean, higher and lower or morally good, morally bad. It's just certain um, activities taking place in certain circuits in your brain, the opioid circuit and so on. And so that's what's going on in the sadist's head. It's just the same as what's going on in Dancy's head when he plays tennis or he does anything else that he enjoys. So I think it's just more parsimonious, perhaps, and more scientifically plausible to say that this is a case in which um, we have pleasure. It's good for the individual, but overall we want to discourage it. So that, that would be the response to, to Dancy. Um, Moore's organic unity thesis is related, I think, to some of Dance's views about particularism. And it depends exactly on what the thesis is. But the idea seems to be that, as it were, um, you know, there might be certain um, items which have little value or even no value that when put together have great value so if we take um you know if we take uh, a great work of art and somebody contemplating it maybe enjoying it uh then the more view might be well you know if you've just got the work of art in existence that's not worth very much if you've just got the consciousness it's just sort of illusion or the person's dreaming or something like that that doesn't seem to be worth very much but what happens is when you get the two things together, they seem to be um, highly valuable. I mean, I haven't really got a sort of knockdown argument against that. It's just that it seems a bit mysterious to me. That, yeah. as it were, you can take two things which are pretty worth, you know, are worthless or not worth very much, put them together, and then hey presto, this weird sort of quasi-chemical reaction takes place and. Uh, value is produced okay yeah those are both great responses so on the on the on the dancy point i see exactly what you're saying which is when he says pleasure isn't always good he actually means pleasure isn't always morally good so he's trying to say that the pleasure of the torturer isn't morally good yep. whereas um you seem to be distinguishing between the way a hedonist is using the word good at least in some cases and um this stronger form of morally good. So when we say pleasure is good, in one way, we can mean that just in terms of, um, like as an internal experience, it's always good, even if we want to make some kind of moral claim about it, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And um, with, with the more one, the, um, the version that I think is most relevant to what we were just talking about is when he's claiming that you have good and bad things together. So he has a similar example to Dancy where he talks about um, punishment, um, corporal punishment. Um, so he claims that um, there's the badness of the pain that the condemned person feels, but there's all these other goods which are coming out of it. And um, the big picture creates this organic unity, which has a, a valence of good. Yeah. Yeah, I think you could provide a similar analysis 
to that case as well. Okay. Yeah, that's really nice. Thank you. Uh, did you want to? Do you want to have a question, Vladimir? Yeah, yeah, just a quick one. Uh, following back from the example that we used earlier about uh, a tennis player uh, having sufficient reasons to feel pleasure and that his value is pleasurable and the torture not having sufficient reasons to feel pleasure, I mean, justified pleasure, of course. Um, I think even Mill addresses that and Mill addresses that in the form of like, we have freedom as long as we don't limit other people's freedom. And for example, a lot of people who stand behind this idea of, of uh, restrictive freedom, such as Isaiah Berlin, and um, even Joseph Raz, he observes that the person has a right when his interests are, are a sufficient reason for holding others to be under a duty. So if we have these duties that limit other people from inflicting pain to other people, we have this, um, constructive approach of hedonism, right? Constructivist approach of hedonism, which give us external reasons what should we feel pleasurable about and what we shouldn't feel pleasurable about. Or even so, if we feel pleasurable about something, we have reasons not to do it because we need to restrict ourselves from inflicting pain and, there, and so on and so forth. So therefore, I think the more restrictive account of hedonism is a justified one, especially within this liberal theory that the authors, I can mention such as Berlin or Mill, actually argue for. Yeah. Um, Mill is a very interesting case in that uh, some people have thought he just contradicts himself because on the one hand, he writes utilitarianism and says the only thing that matters is utility. And then he writes on liberty and he seems to be saying what really matters is the liberty of the individual, the individuality of the individual. And we should never, never interfere with individuals for their own sake, which seems to be inconsistent with utilitarianism in certain cases. But Mill actually, in On Liberty, explicitly says, I'm not appealing to any other value than uh, net pleasure. So I'm inclined to think that, against Berlin, I'm inclined to think that um, in On Liberty, Mill has recognised exactly the point you're making, that interfering with people's liberties nearly always um, uh, decreases happiness overall. So there's a very strong utilitarian case for a secondary principle which, rest which restricts interference with people's liberties. So we, uh, we just have about three minutes left. Um, Peter or Vladimir, do you have any other final question? Uh, I have a question, yeah. So what I'm interested in doing just briefly is asking you about uh, human nature. So I think there's a, a general problem when sometimes when we're discussing any kind of a teleological view or well-being view or a view about the good life and we're kind of predicating that on what we're saying a person actually is. So um, and you briefly in your papers mentioned this distinction between higher and lower pleasures and um, so we seem to think there's some difference between us and animals. So we could just make say something completely uncontroversial which is um it's good for us to eat food and drink water. You know, that's just a biological claim. And um, no one can argue with that if we say that's what's important for human well-being. But then usually philosophers, what they want to talk about higher um, things, which they're saying are essential to well-being, like, for example, wisdom. And um, I just wonder whether, like, w would you agree that that relies completely on some kind of more complicated metaphysical picture of what a human is? Like at one extreme, it could be that we would have to say that people have souls and that that's the, 
the part that um, is related to wisdom just as the body is related to drinking water like what, what do you think about that yeah i think um yeah so this strand of thought which one might call perfectionism has a long history obviously going back to aristotle and beyond aristotle and i think one can see the appeal of it that you know if you want to find out what's good for a certain being find out first what that being is what its nature is and then assume that the perfection of that nature will be good for the being that seems a rather attractive principle and it certainly has uh, seemed attractive to many people over the centuries i think the problem with it is that um what arises when we consider different kinds of being and so if you take for example um, a plant it looks like um, what's good for a plant is it's going to be well nourished and um, it's going to have light and it's going to grow to a certain height and so on its seeds will be produced in um, the correct form and so on but most people would not say that there's anything good for a plant it doesn't have any kind of happiness in its life it would be odd to grieve for a plant if it died because it's lost nothing in a sense um, it's not it's not an owner of well-being so i think what we need to do is to separate the notion of flourishing which i agree makes perfect sense um, from the notion of well-being and like a lot of people i'm inclined to think that it's only sentient beings that can have uh, a well-being so many people will accept that there's an experience requirement on well-being without going the whole way um, to hedonism professor chris thank you very very much for your time we look forward to seeing you at the conference in august in Pardubice. likewise and thank you very much thank you so much have a great day bye for now bye bye goodbye thank you